Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. So this week, I am super, super, super excited and honoured to have as our guest on the podcast, the brilliant Matt Haig. Hello, Matt. Hello, Bryony. Matt wrote Reasons to Stay Alive, which how many people have bought that book? More than have bought any of my other books. I think, <laughs> I think, yeah, it's like in this country, about a quarter of a million or something. That's incredible. And what about in other countries? Well, well, he's, being, he's a, being very humble. I don't know. It's done quite well in Germany and all the depressed Scandinavian countries it's done quite well in. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting, actually, internationally. Um, for instance, I had to do an event in Sri Lanka about reasons to stay alive, but just um, depression and mental health in general. And it's not officially recognized as a thing. I mean, mental illness, you know, a lot of people are in denial about it totally there. And it's not officially recognised. They don't really have mental hospitals in the way we have mental hospitals. But it was like, you know, lots and lots of people turned out. It was one of my biggest events and loads of personal stories. And it's so emotional doing it somewhere where they're They're never really given the forum to talk about it. So Reasons to Stay Alive is your story of your experience with major depressive disorder. Well, I'm going to start quickly. We start each podcast. We'll get back to that, obviously, it being a podcast about mental health. We start each podcast by asking everyone how they really are right now, because we ask that question a million times Mm. a day and we all go, yeah, yeah, fine, fine. Because I guess if we all did really say, actually, I'm feeling really crap today, (laughs) we'd all be there all day. Like, all right, I've got reasons to get to now. (laughs) But how are you really? I'm actually, by my standards, I'm pretty good. I'm in my sort of top 30% of days. I'm really quite good because work-wise, I'm in one of those rare patches where I've finished something. So writing books, you know, most of the time I'm writing novels, you rarely get that sense of satisfaction because you're not completing anything. So I've just completed something. So that is always psychologically quite nice. I'm never, ever since I became ill, I never shake my anxiety completely. I'm always way above average, I think, for anxiety levels. But that is the new normal for me. And I feel pretty happy at the moment by my standards. So you talk about your anxiety levels. How does your anxiety manifest itself? Well, it's just, I don't really have that many specific fears and phobias like I used to have. I will be quite a hypochondriac about a lot of things uh-huh. and a mental health hypochondriac and the nightmare of writing about mental health, and I don't know if you found this yourself yeah. there's lots of good things about it one problem for me was when I was getting contacted by a lot of people 
I was discovering new symptoms I could be having. Yeah. And with mental health, you cannot think yourself into things, can't yeah, you? Yeah. So that's always there. And, you know... You have become a poster boy, really, for mental... I mean, Reasons to Stay Alive is probably the first book that really, frankly, dealt with mental illness. Well, you're the poster girl then, now. I'm, no, well, I don't know. I think that's <laughs> really <laughs> wax. You're, you're, you're still in the top ten, aren't you? I don't, I don't, maybe, I don't know. Yes, you are. You know you <laughs> It's a weird experience, isn't it? Like, yes. becoming, talking publicly about your mental health, because obviously it's really helpful to a lot of people, and it's really helpful to yourself as well, because, as you say, it kind of... He's squirming slightly. Yeah, uh, Not helpful to you. No, I genuinely don't know. I'm so glad I wrote it. Mm-hmm. I was very determined after I wrote it to write something very different straight away because I was so scared. My publishers and myself thought this would be a side project from my main thing. In fact, my publishers told me to write it as fiction and just do another novel, and they weren't really up for it. But I was determined to write it. I got much less money to write it. It was definitely the sense that they felt they had to, because my last book had done okay. They were going to publish my next book. You must be raking it in on the royalties. (laughs) Yeah, it's doing all right now. It's doing okay. They forget that there was ever that sort of lack of enthusiasm about it. But it was definitely seen as like a side thing. When it became quite a big thing, that was quite nerve-wracking, because it became my biggest book. And I'd always wanted to have a book on that scale, but then it was this book directly about me and so when you're getting reviewed often your life is getting reviewed Mm -hmm. and that's how it feels and I'm sure you know that yourself and your personality gets reviewed in a way it doesn't happen with a novel Mm -hmm. fiction so you feel doubly exposed yeah I'm totally up and down about it I think it's great and I feel like it's nice to do something that feels like you're doing some good that's a nice feeling it's you know selfishly Mm -hmm. it's a nice feeling to do good in a way when I'm feeling bad it sometimes makes me worse and when when i'm in a bad anxiety patch i sometimes wish i could temporarily not have written it for a month Mm -hmm. but when i'm in my inverted commas normal state it's a good thing so you get a lot of people getting in touch with you um it certainly this time last year was i had a a month where it seemed to just be lots every day it's gone down to a relatively manageable about now but when I had a I'd just been we'd spent a month in America come back I'm bad at long-haul flights anyway and body clock differences you scared of flying no I'm not bothered about the plane itself I can actually have a rational side of myself who says you know statistically I'm that sort of annoying practical-minded person who can say you know it's far more dangerous you're far more likely to die on the way to the airport I know going to an airport for me is is a traumatic experience (laughs) I have so many like compulsions and checks and balances I have to carry out before I get on a plane I'm bad at turbulence, mm-hmm. you know. Well, it's not fun. No, no one enjoys turbulence, no, do they? No, but I, mean, I had a really bad electric storm coming into New York, and it was really, really, really terrible. And, yeah, since that moment, I've been a little bit more dodgy on planes. But I'm not too bad on planes. It's just more how they make me feel afterwards, because it can just kind of tire you out. And for the, it's like being hung over for a week, isn't it? And I know um, Stephen Fry's talked about this before, but long-haul flights and jet lag can be a real trigger I Mm. find and so I came back from that into a load of work and then my anxiety just kicked in and then I was having all these people many of whom were in a worse state than I was talking to me and sometimes that's a great comfort but sometimes sometimes you just need to shut yourself off don't Mm -hmm. you and I was in that sort of zone so that was the point I regretted writing Reasons to Stay Alive 
didn't last for long, but I had a sort of like four week period where I was in full on anxiety state. One of the things I find when you're in a depression, it's really hard to, to like read or watch anything or you just can't find any enjoyment in anything. And so, you know, it's all well and good people creating self-help books and all the rest of it. But I don't know about you, but I, I find it very difficult to even read a page. But what I found with Reasons to Stay Alive was that I could, it was manageable. It's not a long book, is it? No, it's my, by far my shortest grown-up book it's like 30,000 words or something so so it starts with you in Ibiza Mm. can you talk a bit about what happened to you and how old you were yeah I thought I've got to tell the story honestly but I knew by starting it in Ibiza (laughs) people would think oh well he's just took loads of drugs and he's sort of not got what he deserved but it's a sort of familiar story of a young person but that but can I just say something taking not that I'm saying he did take loads of drugs but I also think if someone is getting out of their head, they don't get what they deserve. It's exactly what it's yeah, that yeah. In, in itself is a symptom of a mental illness. No, totally. My my big thing was always alcohol. Yeah. There were drugs as well, but Ibiza appealed to me because it just seemed like the most escapist, hedonistic place. Certainly in the nineties, it was sort of like the epicenter of uh, nightlife and everything. So it was just a big escape. But by the time I became ill, we'd had three summers there. I think we we're on to our sort of like 11th real month of being in there. And um, we were living in a very, very quiet villa, the owners of a nightclub. Um, it was towards the end of summer, actually trying to get healthy. I was running. I was still smoking and stuff, but I wasn't certainly as crazy as I had been two years before. Mm-hmm. But I had this sense of adulthood looming. I was 24. You were with your girlfriend. So with your girl, or girlfriend, and it was already at that point a long-term relationship because we'd met when we were 19. Um, so, you know, at 24, if you've been in a five-year relationship, that's big. <laughs> and you know, and my re- I'm, I'm 36, and my relationship with my husband has only been five years. Okay, yes, years. yes, well, five years. Big, it's a long time. It's yeah, well, long. I mean, at one year, it'd been a long, massively long. <laughs> one month. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I actually proposed after about... Um, two months so yeah we were it was very intense and scaring our parents for a whole relationship I was very lucky that I was in a long-term relationship so I had someone literally physically with me who I could talk about she's had no direct experience really with serious mental illness and neither of us really understood what depression and anxiety were or what specifically I had the word that stri- worried me all the time, a word that's in the title of your book, was mad. I thought I was mm-hmm. going mad, and I was so scared of what that would be, and I had these silly, because I'd just done an English degree, I had these silly ideas of all the sort of mad poets. and mm-hmm. Byron-esque. Pe- Byron-esque, <laughs> and the, the poet John Clare, who ended up... And all, all those old-fashioned, almost romantic ideas mm. of madness. Of course, it's, we know a lot more about brains and illness now, and it's not quite as simple as that. It's not an all or nothing thing. I was just totally okay one day, quite a nervy young person who didn't know what, to, what they wanted to do with life, but everything that worried me was external. And then suddenly everything that worried me was internal and I just did not know what was going on. And it was just that state of total confusion. And actually to get to the airport, not because I was scared of the plane, just because even just being outside was just so exhausting. To get to the airport was an ordeal. I don't really know what happened other than me being suicidal and stuff. Practically, what happened in that last week of me being in Spain in terms of how Andrea got the flights together, how she said that she was leaving her job and doing this. So she she had a lot of real-world 
stress going on and I was just not out of it I was very in it but yeah having a sort of nightmare and you tried to yeah I was uh, yeah yeah I was very um suicidal but after having been someone who has always been terrified of death and still am I'd suddenly become very very terrified of life or at least this feeling that I had and I was terrified that it was going to get worse because even though it was the worst week of my life the feeling that I was having all the time was that it's going to get even worse mm-hmm. that it's going to get even worse sometimes mental illness it does descend a little bit but that feeling I've found is very you shouldn't should never trust it but it's a very strong feeling that you get that things are going to get worse so it was just like you know so yeah. it wasn't that you wanted to die, you just didn't want to carry no, on living? No, it's like it? suddenly you don't wake up in the morning and want to throw yourself out of a window, but if your building catches on fire, that changes the situation. So the situation had changed in a way I didn't understand it could. And I'm very obviously very glad I didn't do that. I don't know if I'd have ultimately been too afraid to do it or too afraid to not do it, but I didn't do it. But that urge to not exist stayed for at least another three months before there was any sort of slight gradation in the way I was feeling. So how did you get better? And I know that that's a, that's a kind well, of misleading question because recovery yeah. is a constant process, right? But yeah, I mean, I got better in a quite a unconventional not recommended kind of way let's recommend do, this yes, to everyone <laughs> because the, the I suppose the one downside of me being in a relationship meant that I could offload everything to Andrea she could protect me myself from stuff and I could ignore the official things you meant to do so I wasn't going to the NHS I did go to my GP when I was back at home I did get put on medication when I was in Spain but they saw me in Spain and in the midst of a panic attack and they sort of laughed, you know, because it was a beef as if it used to seeing people shaking and they gave me some diazepam, which made me far worse. Really? Yeah, I don't know if it's psychosomatic, but I was suddenly terrified of taking anything and I'd given up alcohol, smoking and drugs, obviously, because of the illness. I was just in a complete pickle, but I got better eventually by getting myself physically healthy by time you know it's such a boring and such a annoying answer if people are in the thick of it but the thing the reason time is so effective is because you have all these things in your head that your brain tells you are true and you really feel are true and you try and rationalize yourself out of them but you can't because the feeling's so strong but then slowly over time if you're literally saying oh, you know, you'll be dead by the end of the week. And then you, week after week, that doesn't happen. Mm. Your brain slowly corrects itself. Mm. That always helped. But what happened when I, I first started to get better, I would become very obsessive, not literally OCD, but very, because I was so scared, mm-hmm. I would be doing everything to prevent feeling ill, which was almost more annoying and difficult for Andrea when I was actually ill because often when I was ill I was trying to not look ill and being very compliant and just sort of going along and being quiet and I wasn't arguing or being difficult because I I was sort of passively ill whereas when I got better I'd be trying to sort of be so 
rigorous about what I was eating and so obsessed about not getting back there again. So trying to protect yourself. What is part of staying well now for you? So is it st- are you less uh, rigorous or do you still feel, you know... You- I'm, I'm probably a bit less rigorous. I mean, for 10 years, I literally didn't drink. I do drink now. I'm not saying I should. I probably shouldn't, but I do occasionally drink. I've drank about four or five times this year. And, um, it's pretty good. Pretty Pat good. yourself on the back. I know I shouldn't. You know, every well, no, I, I, I know but it's poison. <laughs> it, it is poison, but that doesn't stop me. But I, then, yeah, I do it still, and I shouldn't. I feel like for the last ten, fifteen years, I've been better in terms of as well as I, I'm going to be. I mean, I have dips, but my better. I'm always anxious, and I've got a sort of nervous energy. More than half my life, I'm thankful for that, because mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't write without it. I don't know what I would be without it. So a lot of it is just me, my personality. And there's a very clear line, and you know it yourself, there's a very clear line when you're properly capital I ill. Mm. And people can't always understand that, because if you've got an invisible thing, you look exactly the same, you can even act almost the same. Mm-hmm. I got very, very good at bluffing when I was feeling bad. You know, you'd go for months on end feeling bad, but you could somehow look healthy. You come quite thing. good at manipulating yeah. things. Showing, making things look normal. Yes. <laughs> but it was to protect people sometimes. Right in the thick of it, when I was at my illest, when we first went back to England, I was back at my parents' house. We had no money, so we, we were back living with my parents. And they had their own... My mum's a teacher, so she was undergoing an Ofsted inspection. My dad had his own work stresses, and they're getting stressed about their things and in your head you're thinking I would love to have those yeah you know it's selfish but I'd love to have those (laughs) trivial (laughs) earthly concerns because you know it's nothing more egotistical is there in a way by its nature but then if your leg's on fire that's all you're thinking about your leg is on fire yeah no one would say that's selfish but there have been times where I've sort of been very ill and I've thought, oh God, you know, I'd, I'd just like a bus to run me over now, you know, or I'd like to have a broken leg or a, and yeah. just be sedated for two weeks. Yeah, just like that off switch. And that, that's where I think the suicidal impulse comes yeah. from. That's the extreme off switch. I used to almost wish, it sounds really bad, but I used to wish I could be a heroin addict or a alcoholic and have that kind of thing. In reality, I couldn't so much as drink a sip of wine without having a panic attack at that Mm -hmm. point but I just wished that I had something where I could take myself out of myself Mm -hmm. I'm obviously glad I didn't do that but you're so desperate to not feel that that um yeah it becomes very hard one of the things that I like and reasons to stay alive and we'll talk about your new book soon uh the kind of the lists yes (laughs) which make it well, it was just easy to read. And I, I can remember, like you said, about how I was very worried and very scared when I was ill about reading anything about depression or mental illness because the things that were out there, you know, going back nearly 20 years ago, were very academic, mm. dense, big books of weighty prose, often books that would make you feel worse, where the arc was always sort of going down and with reasons to stay alive I so remembered that and I, I, I so didn't want to write an academic book about depression even if I could have written that I wouldn't have wanted to write it the only reader I had in mind was me at my lowest point and just trying to speak as directly and easily because just that thing of concentrating mm. is very hard mm-hmm. with your mind's going every which way place. yeah so I just wanted to you know and lists were a part of that because lists are easy and white space having lots of white space I like that anyway I like you know 
But it was quite, they're quite funny, some of them. I mean, that's what it's nice. There's a sort of levity to it. Things that have happened to me that have generated more sympathy than depression, like living in Hull in the winter. Yeah. <laughs> but, Having yeah. eczema. What was the other one? Oh, yeah, yeah. food poisoning. Um, yeah. I don't know. People need something, don't they? They need a thing, you know, it, it, and that's why people say, what are you depressed about? And there's not always that, you know. This it's question. Not, yeah. It's not a, a novel or a film. It's not always about something. No. It sometimes is. But mostly it's just something it's not, that happens. Yes. And it's something that happens and it's... It might be about something, but it's about science. So it's about something very complex that you can't just say it's about Monday morning or bad weather or <laughs> the school holidays or whatever or whatever. So, yeah, I think that was the other thing. As well as addressing someone who's ill, I was also addressing people who are around that person and trying to make the invisible thing a bit more visible. Because a lot of it is funny. It's like a fish-out-of-water comedy, suddenly. It's mm. a very black humour, but, you know, like, if your mum's talking to you about some little worry to do with a house or a neighbour or something, and you, you literally feel like you're on fire or something, mm. and th- th- they can't see the flames. So it's it's kind of... There's a sort of cruel humour to it. The other one that I realise things people say to depress is that you wouldn't say to anyone else with, like, a life-threatening yeah. illness. <laughs> what are the, some of the things that you... Like, why well, are you depressed? Like, you wouldn't yeah. say to someone, why have you got a brain tumour? Um, you'd never say, what do you have cancer about? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> you would do. No, never. A lot of the time, I find them very sort of self-referential illnesses, not getting too pretentious about it, but it's almost like when I was studying postmodernism at university and everything about being self-referential. Anxiety, depression, all the other disorders, they're... A loop of self-reference aren't they so you get depressed about depression you get anxious about anxiety you get obsessed about obsessions you know so you get into a Mm catch-22 situation and you kind of have to hack your own brain to break it and I think each time you come out of it you're that little bit better at coming out of it because you've not just practiced getting ill you've practiced getting better a lot Mm. of times and I just wanted to impart some of that. I wasn't, well, neither's Mad Girl, your book, but Reasons to Stay Alive isn't a self-help book in the sense that I have all the answers. A lot of it's just about making people feel less alone mm-hmm. and that they relate to something. I just want to talk it out. Well, I wanted to talk to you quickly about Twitter. You're great on Twitter. You've I'm got, not. like, hundreds of thousands of followers. It saves a lot of people who are terrible at Twitter. It's, it's all, I don't never know why people follow you. They might be following you in the sense that they're just wanting to. But how does get it? How do you? The things you say, are, you know, you talk a lot about Donald Trump and world politics and the way you feel. Is it like therapy, getting it out, or do you sometimes have to step away and go? I can't read what these people are saying to me. Well, on a very simple level, it's often because I've got a word document open and I don't want to write. You know, that's too hard, and Twitter's easy, and it's easy to get an instant hit of dopamine you get a response and apparently that does something to your brain so I think there's a little bit of addiction Mm -hmm. with it and it's definitely designed to be like that but certainly when I was writing Reasons to Stay Alive I really got into Twitter and I understood why people use it and I understand why certainly for like mental health issues it's so good because it brings people together who would not be able to find each other in the real world, which is the internet generally, but Twitter's particularly good at it. But it can be very, very bad for your mental health, I think. I've got into lots of arguments which have sort of dominated a weekend. <laughs> and like, like you can go viral in a good way, but you can also go viral in a bad way. And then if people are piling in on you, that's really not nice 
feeling and it can happen if you step out of line or say say the wrong thing if you're for instance against donald trump people align with you on a political level but then you say something which they don't agree with and then then you get a lot of heat so no one's got the same political opinion as someone else and i've got bits of left bits of right bits of middle whatever people will judge your one tweet your one opinion on one issue which might not even be your opinion it's something you're working out in your head it's your opinion at that moment and i've been quite bad at that just thinking out loud and saying something as i would do in real life with people in a room but on twitter it's very much set in stone so yeah i got in trouble once for proposing after reasons to stay alive to write a book about men and masculinity and mental health and so many people didn't understand what i was really suggesting and they thought i was suggesting something really sort of sexist or even misogynistic and i wasn't at all but because they just thought he's saying men have a hard time or that they have a harder time than women which i wasn't saying but i was just saying about whole idea because I've only been a man and that whole idea of my male peers and you know finding it difficult to talk to them and having to lose some of my male friends just just to stay sane really just to sort of not have to pretend too much which women can feel as well but I think there is something in our language about manning up and you know I think I think women have exactly the same amount of issues with mental health but I think they are slightly different like I know I've heard from women they say oh we're always called like attention seekers Mm -hmm. you know if you're talking about drama queens and stuff so we all all face it and mental Mm -hmm. health is I believe it's unisex we always sort of gender break up the statistics but I think everyone has roughly the same amount of problems it's just our cultural context yeah well, because there is that statistic that if you're a man under the age of 45 yeah. in this country, the thing most likely to kill you is not a car, it's not cancer, it's not yeah. a heart, it's not drugs, it's yourself. Yeah, it's such a serious issue. We have to be able to talk about it, even if to get to the truth, we have to tread on certain areas that might not be politically correct. Or, you know, it's like we should yeah. just try openly to talk about it, even if we get some things wrong. Males over the age of 55 are the one, is the one age group that's going up. Yes, because I, I used to, for years, have a false idea that it was younger people who did it. It's just it, the statistics look scarier amongst the young because the other things that kill you aren't as, as present. Yes. You're less likely to die of cancer. Or but when you get old... Now, talk to me. I'm very excited because you bought me a copy of your new book, which is called How to Stop Time. You mentioned a bit earlier that, you know, you're still scared of death. Tell, me, tell us about this book. Yeah, well, I suppose like when you're in a happy state, you're feeling healthy and everyone around you that you love and care about is in a good place. You you wish there was a way to um, stop the clocks. But I think it's also to do with, you know, that idea of mindfulness and just being able to be in the present, which I've always found really hard. Like when I became ill, I, I think before that, all my worries had been about the future, what I was going to do, what job I was going to have what would happen, what people I was going to lose. And I think it's very hard for human beings who have consciousness and are aware that they're human beings and alive to actually live in the moment as animals do, or as we imagine animals do. And so, yeah, that's always been an idea. I would love to know how to stop time, so to write a book around that. I I, I sometimes feel wiser when I'm writing than I do when I'm not writing. I kind of have to go into writing mode and 
explore things to try and sort of find bits out about myself. Okay. Can you give us a, without, <laughs> without, no spoilers, please. Can you give us a kind of brief plot yeah, well, it's a, a story about a, a man who's lived a very, very long life. He's not immortal, but he's got a condition where he ages slowly. And as with a lot of mental health illnesses, he's chosen to keep it secret. So he looks 40 years old, but he's 400 years old. So he was born in the 1580s, and he's now a teacher of history at a school in East London. But he met Shakespeare he met Chaplin, he met Fitzgerald, he, he sailed with Cook on his second voyage. It's a kind of love story and it's about how do you love and live when everyone you invest in, you're going to lose. So we all have that fear, but I just it was a way of putting a magnifying glass to it by giving him this condition where he would lose everything he remembered, even the buildings and architecture, everything changes. It was fun to write. It was sort of escapist, but also a way of just exploring things. It's not directly about mental health, but a lot of that stuff sort of comes in. It's your 15th book. I know. It's ridiculously scary how old I must be. And uh, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I know, but that little list, you always wonder, you know, because like, you, you look at someone like Graham Greene and they've got a long... You wonder how long is my list going to be? It's going to be very, yeah. very long. It's going to be double yeah. that size. Stephen yeah, King's is yeah, like exactly. insane. Exactly. It's just warming up, just warming up. This is just the beginning. Exactly. <laughs> and it's out on the 6th of July. Is yes. Is that still to, the date? Yeah, my birthday week. My birthday week too. What about you? I'm the 5th of July. 3rd. There we go. We're practically birthday. Oh, okay. I know you get asked for advice. You probably get asked for advice a lot and probably get tired giving it. But if there was someone listening to this now, like a young man, sort of 24, who felt bleak and, and felt like he wasn't going to survive the week or that things were, you know, really dark, what would you say to them? I would say that that feeling, although it feels total and it, it feels sort of set in stone, no feeling is set in stone no feeling that you've ever had in your life has stayed and this feeling might stay a little longer than some emotions but you are not going to feel like what you feel like now and very often at that point you think everything's going to get worse you're very often at the lowest point when Mm -hmm. when you feel like that i say in the book that the bottom of the valley doesn't have the clearest view and when when you're in that depth you, you can't see things so there will be many many lives you have beyond this one many many days you have beyond this one which are good and which you're thankful for and as with any illness like flu or any condition that you recover from while you're in it it feels terrible and disabilitating but most mental illnesses even if you have the condition forever you do not feel the same forever Mm. this too will pass Mm-hmm. Thank exactly. you, Matt. That's so. Thank, I'm you, so thank you so much for coming in to see us because you are like you're like a mental health hero, but <laughs> also a really brilliant author. So I'm really looking forward to um, this. How to stop time? The sixth of July. Author of fifteen books now. <laughs> the uh-huh. humans and all your kids' books are great as well. Yeah. Well, after writing about depression, <laughs> I, I thought Father Christmas was the obvious inevitable follow-up to... A Boy Called Christmas, The Girl Who Saved Christmas. Have you just done another Christmas one? Yeah, I've, that's it now for Christmases. I've done three Christmas That's 16 books. books, actually. Yeah. So if you want cheering up, so read Reasons to Stay Alive, followed by some Christmas books. <laughs> followed yeah. by your kids' books. Thank you so much, Matt. You're thank awesome. Thank you, Bryony. You are too. Thank you. 
If you've been affected by anything we've talked about in our podcast today, a comprehensive list of mental health services is available on our website, which is www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash madworld. If you want help right now, the following organisations offer free and confidential support over the phone. The Samaritans can be reached 24 hours a day, seven days a week on 116-123. Or you can contact the mental health charity Mind for advice on a range of mental health issues. Their phone number is 0300-123-3393. That's 0300-123-3393. And they're accessible 9am to 5pm, Monday to Friday, excluding bank holidays. Finally, there's Young Minds, who provide support if you're a parent or a carer worried about a child's welfare. They're on 0808 802 5544. That's 0808 802 5544. And remember this, you are not alone. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 